Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. And this is Serious Film People, our series on the films of 19... The Best Picture nominees of 1975. 75 movies, 76 ceremony, distinction I'm tired of making. And this is our recap episode. We've done all five... We did it, guys. We've done all five. Let's give ourselves a round of applause. That's Woo. right. Woo. Exciting. And now, uh, now we can talk about, you know, all of them as a whole, as an aggregate. I would say we probably seen more nominees from that year than a lot of the people that voted. Yes, I well, well actually, I uh, we can touch on that. It is startling to look at the background information, look at particularly the box office results of these films, and consider just how many people in America actually saw the best picture nominees of that year compared to 2022 or anytime moving forward. Uh, the best picture nominees of 1975 were In Alphabetical Order, Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, Nashville. One flew over the cuckoo's nest, and hold on, I'm I'm pulling up the box office of all five of these guys just to reiterate Ken's point. I didn't see that first one you mentioned in alphabetical order. When did we do that one? Uh, very funny. Uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest made 163 million worldwide. Barry Lyndon made only 20 million worldwide. Dog Day Afternoon made 56 million worldwide. Jaws made 472 million worldwide. Nashville made 10 million. Um, I think in like in twenty twenty two dollars, those are all probably at least fifty million dollar grocers. I imagine um, Nashville being the lowest of that five at only ten. A lot of best picture nominees nowadays only make ten million dollars in twenty twenty two dollars. You know, let alone nine hundred twenty dollars, or they don't make a box office at all because they were released on Apple TV Plus, for example. But to your point, Ken, three of the five uh, highest grossing movies of the year were these three movies, being Jaws. One Flew the Cuckoo's Nest, and Dog Day Afternoon. The no- one and two were Jaws, and One Flew the Cuckoo's Nest. Pretty wild. There's a certain sense of pride in people when you hear that, actually. You watch these movies, and you're like, oh, good on all of you for showing up to these movies. Uh, whether you loved them or not, the fact that you just showed up is a real testament to filmgoers at the time. So the first question when discussing the Best Picture nominees of 1970 in the aggregate is... The reason we started with 1975 as our first series in this podcast, which is, was this the best year for Best Picture nominees? Most people think so. TJ, what do you think? I thought we picked this randomly, but uh, um, it, it's as good as any that I can come up with off the top of my head. I mean, there's certainly others that, you know, 07, 67, 99, um, that had excellent uh, even 76 uh, that had excellent choices, but I would say this is probably as good a one as any. There's really not a stinker in the bunch here. Um, there's there's movies I loved and movies I didn't love, but there's really not a stinker. I agree. Yeah. Ken, what do you think? Yeah, there's it, it's, in the, it's in the conversation for sure, and there's no reason. You can make just as good an argument for this being the best as you could for just about any other year, and in fact, a better argument for 75 than the vast majority of years. Um, and yeah, to TJ's point, the fact that four of these are truly great films, I think. I think they're all five pretty great, honestly. I think, well, I, I think our, our tepid, our more tepid reaction, I think to one of to, to Barry Lyndon was, I think a testament to the fact that it doesn't hold up so well. It drags. Uh, there are issues with that movie. It's certainly not terrible. And Certainly, if you compare it to some films that we've seen nominated over the last few years, 75 has nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, these are these are five really well-made films. Barry Lyndon certainly has that going for it. But four of these, I think, hold up really, really well. And if you can actually sit an audience down today, I think four of them, I, I think four of them still would get a lot of people at least having intellectual discussions, reacting positively to the film in some way, even if they don't love the film, they're going to walk away uh, having gotten something from it. Barry Lyndon, probably most, most people are going to walk away with a nap. Yeah. It's also interesting in, in terms of like speaking to the power of like this being possibly the best batch of Best Picture nominees ever is that it's all made by renowned, you know, all-time directors you got a robert altman in here you got stanley kubrick in here you got steven spielberg in here you got a sydney lumet in here and then you have the winner milos foreman who made the winner who's probably the least acclaimed at least in my mind of those five 
Am I crazy or what do you think? And yet, but this is his first. He's going to win another Best Picture unless yes, he is. Uh, he comes back with Amadeus. So hell yes, Amadeus. I freaking love Amadeus, dude. <laughs> um, yeah, it's good. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you don't you don't really see that anymore. Like, I mean, we've had years where like Scorsese and Spielberg are both in Best Picture and, and stuff like that. But having like having Altman, Kubrick, Spielberg, and uh, Lumet all together in Best Picture nominees is, is wild to me. TJ, I agree that I think 67 is up there. 2007 is up there. I think 2019 is up there. Uh, like, I think of those nine movies, like, six of them are outstanding. Um, if you only took the top five, I, I would put the top five in 2019 against the top five of any year. Um, TJ's making a face, but um, you're probably not a great girl that's person, just and I am. So, you know, that's fine. 99, I think, is interesting because, like, that's considered maybe the best year of movies in the last, like, 30 years. But I'm not sure the five Best Picture nominees necessarily reflect that. And I don't know if the winner reflects that as much. I think there are a lot of non-nominated Best uh, Movies from 1999. Um, but, so, what, what, what about this year? What movies from 1975 have you guys seen that did not make the Best Picture nominee cut do you think might be deserving of a conversation about it? Ken, what do you got? other other 75 movies i've mentioned this in passing just when the three of us have spoken i love uh the man who would be king i think tj recently watched that film yeah i watched it like while we were doing the 75 blitz it is one of the truly great uh adventure films i think of all time john houston directing sean connery and michael Caine. uh it's a thoroughly entertaining film. It's also a smarter adventure film. There's a lot of scenes in that film that are, it's just dialogue. There's not a whole lot of action. And I think the performances are fantastic. So I revisit that film all the time. Would you replace Barry Lyndon with that? Or even Nashville with that? Uh, I would not have replaced, I would not have replaced Nashville. But uh, if I, if I'm being completely honest with myself, if I'm, if I'm an Academy voter in 1975, there's a chance I would more likely vote for something like The Man Who Would Be King over Barry Lyndon. There's also, though, um, and I'll let TJ dive into this more because TJ likes this film, I think, better than I do. Uh, Grey Gardens for documentaries is a stupendous, stupendous film. I I most definitely would have voted for that over Barry Lyndon. <laughs> How many documentaries have ever been on for Best Picture? None. Any? Zero? Okay. That Shit. is a that is a big zero. Yeah, no documentaries ever has ever crested into the best picture. So as a as an academy as a hypothetical academy voter in nineteen seventy five, Ken would break the mold and insist that Grey Gardens be included in the five. Sucks to your Stanley Kubrick. Sucks to your Robert Altman. Give me Grey Gardens. Give me a bunch of old old broads. That, we'll, we'll get to this because I think we're going to discuss our ranking. I would not have, I would have substituted Barry Lyndon. I, and I'm not saying Grey Gardens was, is the one I would vote for, but I certainly would have voted for it over Barry Lyndon. Despite, despite how much I appreciate Stanley Kubrick, this is not the Stanley Kubrick film, at least for me. What are some 75 movies you've seen, TJ, that you think could be in a conversation about the best of the 75? Well, Grey Gardens is an all-timer for me. I love Grey Gardens. Um, I also saw Deep Red by Dario Argento. Would not be in the conversation for top five movies, but it's it's fun, and you should check it out if you haven't seen it. A couple more. Um, Michelangelo Antonioni's The Passenger, also starring Jack Nicholson, um, is a fantastic movie. Same year, and Nicholson is doing a very different performance, uh, much more muted, like King of Marvin Gardens type of thing. And it's like an existential road trip where he kind of assumes the identity of somebody else and tries to leave his life behind. It's a really great film. I've never seen The Passenger, but I do know from uh, having read a few things, uh, not only biographies, but interviews with Nicholson, he loved working with Antonioni in that film. That is one of his personal favorite films to have worked on, apparently. It's a great movie. Amacord is awesome. I don't know if Amacord would make my top five, but Amacord that's, is that's awesome. Fellini, More right? on Amacord later. Federico Fellini. Yeah. It is Fellini. Okay. My problem. It's not technically a 75 release. It's only here for on a technicality. Because Fellini did get a, a director's nod in... Many people would argue, if you look at the nominees for director this year, Spielberg didn't get it for Jaws, but Fellini got it for Amacord. And I think that's on a technical... It's only on a technicality here because the film was actually released... Uh, in 74 and tj you mentioned earlier and i think you're right it was actually it first played festivals in 73 
Uh, I saw another film called Jean, Jean Dillman. This is the second time I had seen this. Full is Jean Dillman 23, Croix du Commerce, 1080, Brussels is the full title. This is a Chantal Ackerman film. I'm already bored just hearing the title. So <laughs> are you going to defend this as one of the best five best movies of 75? It's a three hour and 20 minute movie about a woman who uh, chops potatoes and yes. makes beds and has sex with men. Oh, it's a tough sit, but intellectually it is quite stimulating. Um, it's an early. Well, I'm 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 really happy movie. for you. I'm really happy for you in your simulation, but I'll, I'll pass on that one. Hey, we're dropping in from the future. Say hey, guys. Hello, Hello from the future. Hey, Josh. Um, so I don't know if you heard, but there is this thing that comes out like once every ten years. It's called the Sight and Sound Best Films of All Time. And I just sent you a link to the list they released. Highly anticipated. Uh, do something. We've been waiting me. ten years for this list. Yeah, do a little Control F, scroll to the okay. top, look at number one, okay. and uh, okay. I, I I couldn't quite. It's not loading on mine. What's number one say? Josh, I, you just you jinxed it for all of us. Everyone in the world now. I would like for you to read the entire title, please. Uh, the title is Josh Eats Crow because the sight and sound poll made me look like a big dumb idiot. <laughs> well, okay, for the record. We timestamped ourselves several times in this episode. We recorded this in July of 2022. I think we we name a few things that date that. Not coming out until March 2023. And uh, yeah, in the interim, <laughs> I look mm-hmm. like a big idiot now. In your, in your defense, I mean, <laughs> there, there was no way someone could properly predict the number one in the, this year's son, the 2022 sight and sound. Well, when the list came out, I don't know if you remember this, Ken. I'm sure you remember this, TJ. Uh, the list came out, and I texted the two of you, and I said, I've never heard of the number one movie. And what did you say, <laughs> TJ? Fun fact, I name-dropped this in our 1975 episode, so you weren't listening. <laughs> you said, yes, you have yes, heard of it. Yes, you have heard you of it. You said the title bored you. You, you did, jumped yeah. jumped in my face uh-huh. right away. And you, listening to this, just heard me say that. A mere 60 seconds ago. Di- so. Directed by who? Uh, I have no idea. I don't know. Chantel Ackerman. Say her name. Chantel Ackerman. <laughs> I'm so sorry. And I'm so stupid, apparently, that no. you know, six months before is named the greatest movie of all time by... Our, our, uh, Sight and Sound List is the most renowned list, right? That's like like that's the list of serious film people. Is that agreed? Yes? I think so. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, so months before this was crowned the greatest movie of all time, and like that's a you know that's a big kind of a big deal. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it's the reason Citizen Kane is Citizen Kane, mm-hmm. honestly. Mm-hmm. That being number one on the sight and sound list for fifty years or however long was number one. Now, Jean Dielman is yeah. Jean Dielman, Jean Dielman. Uh How is how is it said, DJ? Uh, well, seriously, don't people don't let him do don't let him do it. Dillemont. And there's Give me the full title. Well, I was going to say, and there's, and there's yeah. more to it. Jean Dillemont, 23, Croix du Camille, 1080, Brussels. Okay. Directed by well, Chantal Ackerman. That's... And after you say the title, there's still three hours and 15 minutes of making beds <laughs> and peeling potatoes. Josh, I blame you. You jinxed it. You, you wish, you, you told TJ that you, you hoped he, he would enjoy his stimulation. From the film, and I do hope he enjoys this. Yes, but now you force the rest of us to have to. That's true. Partake How many people in that. are now sitting through peeling potatoes because of the sight and sound list. <sighs> yeah, I, I mean, I still, I still haven't watched it. For, for the record, I have not watched it yet, and I, you know, I probably will at some point. But you know, I think it's only it's, because you recommended it. Only because you recommended it in the 1975 episode, not because of the sight and sound list. That's why I'm going to watch it, TJ. Well, thank you. It's good. It's well worth your time. But I do imagine the numbers of aspiring cinephiles out there that like, like, oh, best movie of all time. Weird. I've never heard of this, you know? And then they <laughs> pop it on and they're like, what the actual f*** is going Those on here? Those poor people. Yeah. The, it's going to be like, uh, I mean, you guys know, I saw Satan Tango in a theater oh, a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. That was a... Uh... That was a day. Literally a whole day. I did as well. Day. I went in at 2 p.m., came out at like 10 p.m. Yeah, I think, I think it was about 2 to 10.30 for me, yeah. Two intermissions. They let, you bring, yep, yep. they let you bring snacks. Yeah. Huh, I was yeah. like, great. Then you got to pace yourself with the snacks. All right. I think we can end this drop-in. <laughs> I just wanted to acknowledge my uh, dumb, dumb mistake of dismissing Gene Dealman. That's okay. It happens. However the Americans say it. But don't yeah. ever and, let uh, it happen it's now, again. 
it's now crowned the number one movie of all time. Mm-hmm. So, TJ, great recommendation, and I'm an idiot. Back to the episode. Um, Sallow, or 120 Days of Sodom by Pier Paolo Pasolini. This movie, uh, I don't know if I ever want to watch it again. It's quite intelligent, very good. It also made me, like, dry heave twice. It's extremely disturbing. There, there's that's what has to be on the cover, by the way, for the DVD copy for yes, all those listeners. Made me dry heave twice. Yeah. This is this is widely considered one of the one of the top three probably most disturbing movies ever made, I think. Yeah, I would say so. Um I see it on a lot of lists. A lot damning, of references. Yeah. damning commentary. Hmm. I saw Picnic at Hanging Rock, uh didn't do it for me. It's a Peter Weir movie. Wasn't my jam. Uh, of course, Monty Python and the Holy Grail came out this year. I would not call it a top it. five movie, but it's I loved it in high school. And lastly, Rocky Horror Picture Show is another 1975 gem. Wouldn't put it, I, I wouldn't put it top five, but it's kind of a cult classic thing that I think people should see. I mentioned Great Gardens. I would have legitimately considered throwing Three Days of the Condor in here. Um, that's uh, a political thriller from 1975 starring uh, Redford. Um, and that, I think, holds up really well um and particularly at the time i'm a little surprised it didn't do better actually who made that Academy, if i'm being honest um that was sydney pollock that's pollock mm, yeah sydney, sydney pollock. pollock okay in one of his earlier not movies, sydney, yeah. LeMay, sydney pollock um i've also seen that i think that's one of the i think i think three doors of the condor and holy grail are the only two 1975 movies that were not best fiction nominees that i've seen and three doors of the condor is really good I could easily see that taking either Bearland's place or Nashville's place. I'm spoiling my ranking. I clearly, I think Nashville and Bearland are bottom two of these five, but uh, I think that one day, uh, Three Days of Condors, um, on par, uh, a good Faye Dunaway, a good Bob, a good Bob Redford, a good like sleek. It's a spy movie kind of thing. Um, it's cool. Yeah, I like that. And it's taught. It's a lot of meticulous unfolding in that film. Yeah, but it's smart. It's a smart film, and yeah, I'd make an argument for that. I'll just throw out a couple more. They're not, I wouldn't count them for best picture, but if you get a chance, The Wind and the Lion, another Sean Connery film, an adventure film starring Connery and uh, Candace <laughs> Bergen. The Wind and the Lion. Oh, there's <laughs> lots of cats around here. Movies. It's, it's movies. It's uh, The Winter and the Lion. That's a snow pushy. <laughs> it's, an, it's a thoroughly enjoyable film. Uh, you got Night Moves starring Gene Hackman. Another I surely employed your mother last night, Trebek. <laughs> Night Moves. Sorry, I'll quit. Enjoyable thriller. Again, um, not great. It's not one of Hackman's best, but it is Hackman in the 70s. I have seen Night Moves. Yeah, that, that one's pretty good also. But also, like, weird. The 70s were weird about, like, lusting after teenage girls who are underage. Uh, Night Moves being one of them. One for the Cuckoo's Nest being another. Yes. I, I, I don't love that watching 70s movies how often that comes up no, we got that I, on the record josh does not like <laughs> statutory rape correct we are i'm gonna I'm go ahead I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and plant a flag this put, podcast is against put a line in the sand a line in the sand we are anti uh underage girls and lusting after them on this podcast i'm glad i'm glad we it's took a brave that stand it's a brave stand to drop that for any anybody who might be listening if you like john wayne 75 is not a great year for John Wayne, but he's got True Grit, the True Grit sequel, Rooster Cogburn, co-starring Catherine Hepburn, which is just I know that I didn't know that existed. The, the fact that the two of them go back and forth, it's it's so entertaining. And he's also he's in a contemporary film called Brannigan, where he plays a Chicago cop who has to investigate a murder in London. And it is not a great film, but it is a perfectly enjoyable throwaway Saturday afternoon film. Those two films, again, warning. You have to like John Wayne. Um, if you don't, you're gonna want to gouge your eyes out and you're and just run away screaming. Great recommendation. <laughs> Rooster Cogburn though does have the added bonus of Catherine Hepburn, and she really uh, she keeps him in line. Let's just put it that way. She's you're really convincing all time great. Uh, other movies from '75 that I neither of which I have seen. I've not seen these, but there's Rollerball. Great James Con who uh, ripped. James Kahn, as of this recording, just died a few days ago. Um, I don't know when this is going to come out. This is probably going to come out like months after his death. But uh, as of we record this, he just recently passed. <laughs> he away. died three years ago this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's also Dolomite. Uh, the movie Dolomite came, Dolomite came out in 75. Um, I don't know where you guys are at on Dolomite is my name from three years ago, but I really enjoyed that. Remember, I said it was better than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Which I I, I I still don't think you're actually being serious. I think you're doing it. I am dead like, serious. I'm, I'm, narr- I'm narrowing my yeah. eyes at you. That's fine. 
to anybody listening, that doesn't necessarily say a whole lot for Dolomite, just to be clear. I think that opinion disqualifies you from any uh, speaking on this podcast for the rest of the day, but uh, I'm I no may, longer I serious. lift that uh, restriction. Then the Stepford Wives, the original Stepford Wives? I didn't know that was 75. I have seen this film, and okay. it is creepy. <laughs> it is effectively creepy to watch. I say effectively compared to the remake. I think that sits nicely among like the vibe it's going for of like you know con- conformity and in the face of authority and that kind of stuff kind of gels with um, some of the other movies that we've discussed in this series, uh, which brings me to uh, the trends. So in, in in our five movies that we watched, Barry Lyndon, Dog Afternoon, Nashville, Jaws, and One Through the Cuckoo's Nest, what trends, patterns, themes do we see amongst these films? TJ, what trends, patterns, themes do you see among the five? Among four of them, not Nashville, I think there's a strong um, impetus on the individual rising to the occasion to particularly deal with some sort of social pressure. The assassin um, in Nashville rises to the occasion as an individual, you know. Yeah, but I don't think it's necessarily celebrated. No, um, it's it's I think all of these are, except for Barry Lyndon, highly uh, politically conscious films about America within that moment. Um, I think aesthetically, there's kind of an immediacy or a rawness to Nashville Dog Day Afternoon and to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I think a lot of them, a lot of the films as well, deal with uh, death, legacy, conformity, and not not really a great year if you're looking for uh, a representation of well-rounded female characters, uh, no. except for like Nashville. Um, Even that though. So these these are pretty. But the women in there at least are interesting characters. Kind of. I mean, Lily Tomlin's interesting. Um, Shelley Duvall is not. Um, Opal is... Ronnie Blakey, Blakely's... She's uh-huh. kind She's of interesting. interesting. Blakely's character... Her character is interesting. It's just... it's it's We're at a distance. We're kept at a distance from her, and it's just kind of a tragic watch. That's true. Um, but That's she, true. Plays the, she plays the character really well. But but it's a very, it's a very masculine batch of films. Um, yes. Yes. Yes, it, it's a very it's, wh- it's a very white batch of films. Yes, it is. All of these films reflect their times. Even Lind- even Barry Lyndon, even though Barry Lyndon is the only one of the bunch that isn't contemporary, they are all, in some level, certainly reactive to the times in which they're made, particularly uh, on a political and social level, and they're all speaking to something that the audience is feeling, which may may explain why three of these five drew such a big audience. Admittedly, the audience for movies back then was higher just by nature. But the fact that people responded to positive criticism at the time, people are showing up to see these movies, and they are reacting positively to them. They're, they're seeing something to connect to. They're seeing something to react to. That makes them feel like the people making films are hearing them, maybe, or at least noting what they're going through. Particularly, I'd say, uh, from Dog Day Afternoon and even Jaws to a degree. If you if you look if you look past the surface level monster movie of it all, these films are saying something that people actually recognize. Yeah, in themselves and, and in their life and the world around them. And it's it's hard to watch these movies and not think about um, Watergate. You know, I feel like we, I feel like Watergate came up every episode in this, in this series and it, but it's, it's, mm. it's impossible to divorce it, especially because as TJ kind of alluded, I think all five of these movies are pretty critical of institutions and systems and do celebrate the individual. The individual is not celebrated as much in Nashville, but Nashville is at least, you know, it opens with, uh, we must be doing something Highly right to last 100 years. It, it, it is critical of the institution. Yes. And, you know, uh, Yes. Criticism of institution is like the text, the baseline text of One Flew the Coos Nest. Um, I think Barry Lyndon kind of slim, sliming in and out of different militaries, two different militaries, is critical of institutions uh, versus the individual. Jaws, again, is very textually critical of uh, local politics and how they prioritize the economy over personal safety. And um, Dog Day Afternoon is, again, like two individuals trying to being kind of put into a corner because of society not really know what to do with them and so they rebel against that in a in in a in a major way i don't know if that i don't know if that's all related to watergate but just the fact that like a a distrust of institutions 
versus individual and like kind of uh, fighting back against uh, oppression perceived or otherwise, you know, that's all, that's all here. The, you can read Watergate and, the, and its impact into all of these films because yeah. you ju- you know, watching all of these films, the cast and crew, there's a television somewhere on set mm-hmm. with the hearings on in the background when most of these are being actually made. And it's definitely it's definitely in the mindset of the people making the movie, and they can't divorce that from the final product. It comes through. Anything made in 2002, 2003, like 9-11 is kind of just like lurking behind every every movie made at that point. Whether it's not like directly about 9-11, it just kind of like – it was such a earth-shattering, changing everyday life in such a big way that it, it can't help but see through into the art that people were making. And I think that Watergate is probably like that. Certainly. I think the most interesting thing this, that we can pull from this is looking at modern times that we don't do that anymore, right? There's the, the modern time, like we're watching right now, it's July of 2022. There, is, there are ongoing Watergate-level hearings about an attack on the Capitol by citizens. Are we going to, what, maybe Adam McKay is the closest thing we have to a filmmaker going to make don't, something related to don't, that? Don't make, me think about, don't make me think about Adam McKay's eventual movie about January 6th, because it's not going to be good, but you're right. But it's, it's right. about, I mean, Armageddon time is the only thing, and it touches on Trump, and Trump, I think, the, the, that so, whole, so speaking what, of like, how Trump came to be what he is. Speaking of modern movies, modern movies responding to the cultural moment, uh, I, I will make this point again on this podcast if we keep doing these, but um, Sean Fennessy on The Ringer has pointed out the Best Picture nominees in the 2000s, in the 2000s in particular, really reflect like the, the political landscape of the time. Because you have, like, post 9-11, you have A Beautiful Mind, which is like a, a hopeful movie. And then, you know, Chicago is an upbeat musical. And then Return of the King again is is a celebration and and upbeat and then bush gets reelected in 2004 and then your next best picture winner is one of the most dour best picture winners of all time being million dollar baby and then you have crash again very dour and down the departed great movie but you know not exactly hopeful no country for old men again one of the most like nihilism maybe is a harsh word but it's certainly not hopeful and, you know, so, like, the, the second half of the Bush years, as as we're knee-deep in Iraq and Afghanistan, like, the the tone of the Best Picture winners kind of reflects the national dourness, I guess. And then, you know, Obama gets elected and we get Slumdog Millionaire, which is whimsical and, and happier. And then the Hurt Locker, which is kind of like us engaging with and reflecting on the, the wars that we've been involved with for a decade now at this point. And then you get the King's Speech and the Artist. Like... The King's Speech and the Artist would not win Best Picture in either Bush's second term or during Trump's presidency, but they did during Obama's first term. Those are Obama's first term kind of Best Picture winners, you know? And so, like, you can't you can't kind of trace that. The tone, I think you're right. Yeah, the tone, like how we're feeling, whether or not we want upbeat or, you know, let's be honest, like the artist, like relative fluff, something that that sounds on paper like it's a smart, you know, throwback <laughs> homage. But it's, it's not. And in fact, it's... <laughs> It's just it's just kind of cutesy, silly. It's it's well made, but it's there's nothing spectacularly lasting. Co- Coda winning Best Picture during a Joe Biden presidency just is, is is so correct and so perfect in terms of like this this conversation and this lens, you know. But I guess what I, with the except with some exceptions, like Parasite takes politics on an international trip because it's of course, but it's an exception because it's the first international the non non English language speaking film to win. And then you've got Nomadland, which I guess does. Granted, it's a decade late, following the reset, the, the the recession. But it's just very rare nowadays. I feel like we get films that engage the audience at least more directly in the the ills and troubles of our times. Whereas in the seventies, they're going all in on those, and that is what yes. the Academy is embracing. Yes. So that that's a good segue. Thank you for that because uh, TJ has in the outline here um, something about seventies films being a gateway for modern films to older films. Uh, I was going to ask you guys about that just because I I heard that when I was in film school, uh, one of the teachers uh, who did like the kind of film history thing and taught like the Hollywood Renaissance, um, sixty seven to seventy six, roughly speaking. And he was trying to sell people. Unfortunately, a lot of people that went to film school like had never seen The Godfather or something like that, which I know is disgusting. But 
it was a, it was a thing. And he was trying to sell us on like, look, if you can't stand films from like the 30s and 40s because they're too old and slow, not my opinion, start with these like Hollywood Renaissance films because they're like gateways to, uh, you can tell they're different from what's out now, but they're not like, you know, the thin man or something, right? Um, I, I, I don't know. I was just curious what you guys thought about that claim after watching these. Yeah, I, I think that uh, the movie that I usually point to is like the start of modern movies is well there's really two most people have seen the godfather i feel like a lot of people have seen jaws and Hopefully. but like once right but once you get past the godfather and jaws into the early 70s uh it gets to be a lot slimmer pickings but like i don't know jaws and the godfather look more or less like modern movies these five kind of don't one for the cuckoo's nest looks like it was made in the 70s you know it doesn't look like it was made recently i, I think i've said this to you guys privately before that but for me the first modern movie is Bonnie and Clyde from 1967, which I'm sure we'll cover at some point. That's kind of the demarcation for like everything beyond this looks and is paced a certain way and everything before this is paced and looks a different way. Can you seem like you disagree? There are eras, right? And so TJ is referring to this. Uh, it comes by different various names, either the Hollywood Renaissance or the, Ho- the American New Wave because it's following yeah. after the Italian and French. This like 67 to like early 80s, depending on where you want to cut it off at. And Bonnie and Clyde is notoriously the that's the that's the film that kind of loudly announced a shift. The studio's no longer controlled. Here we have auteur American auteurs stepping in, and I agree with you that it, it notes a shift. I'm not sure that there it fully continued though through today. I think there's definitely if you want to find a through line, you can try to find them throughout history for sure. You can go back and you can look at something like the Citizen Canes and you can look at the Third Mans, um, but you have to almost go outside of Hollywood to find some of the through lines, in American film at least. I think you're right that older films, particularly the from the golden era, the golden age of Hollywood, uh, they don't look, and a part of that is the, just the film technology they're using, the film they're actually using itself. Um, the tricks of the trade, uh, there's more advancements, but yes, there's a different look. A lot of that is who's in control, right? I would argue that what we see today, these big franchise films that are committee, really committee produced, um, to some degree, they're starting to look more like something we would have found in the golden age exactly because they feel more studio controlled. And there was that, there were decades in the middle where particularly in the 70s was like the peak period for the auteur filmmaker the idea that the filmmaker is the one actually putting together the story and actually one speaking to the audience and now we we get kind of either or every once in a while you get the you get auteur filmmakers fighting for space and you get filmmakers trying to say something but at the same time the control is once again i think with corporations with studios yeah yeah and I, I think people mistake how much control the filmmaker has nowadays sometimes i mean sometimes they still do but a lot of times it's by committee more so than 70s at least that's the that's the sense i get tj do you want to talk about the oscar notables from the year just a couple things that stuck out stuck out sorry um <clears throat> we've mentioned this already that uh direct best director and best picture didn't line up five for five that um and what a lot of people saw as the Steven Spielberg spot for director uh, mm-hmm. Federico Fellini got in for Amacord. Um, I, I mean, I don't know who's to say he might have perhaps Jaws snuck in instead of Amacord. You know, I, I, I don't know. But I that's typically so. how it's looked at. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, and, well, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just I, I wasn't there. Um, fun fact, uh, Fellini also shows up in original screenplay. Um, Didn't know that. So we. There's a, there's a precedent for it, it doesn't happen a lot that foreign language films are recognized by the Academy uh, far too much. I mean, in fact, this should kind of be called like the American Film Awards. But um, uh, if shows up there and the original Scent of a Woman film was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, the Best Foreign Language Film went to that's what it was called at the time, Foreign Language Film. Uh, went to Russia for a film directed by Akira Kurosawa. The film's called Dursu Usala. I have not seen it. Um it's like two and a half hours long. It's in my queue. I just didn't get to it for this time. But I'll take the hit here as the resident Kurosawa fan because I do love 
Kurosawa, both contemporary and his his samurai. I have not seen this one. I'm not going to lie. The fact that it is a long Russian language film has definitely uh, resulted in my pushing this further and further back on my list of must-watches. So uh, I'm very surprised to have seen this uh, winning that year. Um, And it is... There's something, I guess, to be said for the 70s. This is when you're starting to see the Academy really start recognizing foreign filmmakers. Um, I do wonder how much of that is because you've got the the rising um, school uh, film school educated youngsters like you know the Coppolas and the Scorseses and the Spielbergs who are coming up, and they having having watched Kurosawa learn from Fellini and the like, suddenly you're getting them and Antonioni and Bergman actually getting nominations at the Academy Awards. Do we want to rank them? Yeah, let's do it. So here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to rank the five. And we have a point system where your fifth place choice gets one point, fourth place gets two, three, three, four, two, five gets one. Uh, I will then tally them. We're basically doing a preferential ballot. Uh, before we get to that, obviously, one for the Cougar's Nest won for the Academy. I'm curious just what you guys think, just speculating, what you think the... They, if they released a top five. Um, my argument is it was Cuckoo's Nest 1, Dog Day Afternoon 2, because it won screenplay, um, had Best Director, Best Actor nominations. I think Jaws was third. It won all its nominations, including editing, except for Best Picture. I think Barry Lyndon's fourth. It won, like, four awards, all in technical. And then I think Nashville's last, because Nashville only won, like, Best Song. That was just... Uh, totally spitballing um i don't know what do you guys think uh i think that was a very lucid cogent defense and i agree with you oh okay all right well let's start with our fives then all right fifth place earning one point josh do you want to start we'll go josh ken teach sure i'm gonna go ahead and i think i'm probably gonna break from from you guys i'm gonna put nashville in my five spot nashville all right only one point to nashville for me I don't know. Like I, I watched it. I watched it during the pandemic, and then I watched it again for this. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm just not sure it's like my kind of movie. Um, I think you said that during our episode that I I respond more to uh, more structured screenplays, and it's a by design a very unstructured, very loose kind of movie. And uh, I think it's harder for me to wrap my head around. So um, okay. Yeah, like, yeah, even compared to, like, Barry Lyndon, which I know none of us really, really liked that much. I think I liked that more than you guys, so um, mm-hmm. I- I've thought more about Barry Lyndon since we watched it than I have about Nashville since we watched it, even though a political leader was assassinated just, like, days ago, and that happens in Nashville. Talking about Shinzo Abe in Japan, again, to date when we're recording this episode. Shinzo Abe was assassinated a few days yes. ago. Yes. It's wild, too. Um, yes. For so many reasons, but... I, yeah, I don't know. That that would really shook me. I couldn't believe someone assassinated. Yes, and, a lot and we we also Abe, excuse me. Then we also had Fourth uh, of July within the last week, and I saw a few tweets that made me laugh that said uh, this year's Fourth of July really has the uh, last twenty minutes of Nashville kind of vibe. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of bleak. But it's, Yikes! It's kind of. Yikes! I, I, I don't disagree. Yeah, <laughs> Ken. What's what's your five, Ken? My number five is Barry Lyndon. There's, of course. Okay. Any comment, real quick? Oh, I, the less said, the better. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, my number five is also Barry Lyndon. Um, I don't think I loathe it the way Ken does, um, but it. You know, listen back to the episode. I've got reasons it didn't particularly work for me. Um, Josh, four. Barry Lyndon. Give it. Give it. Double its right. points. One point from Ken, one point there we from go. Peter, two points from Josh. Um, I, I, I think I found this more interesting than you guys did, especially, like, I kind of, like, I watched it. It was a bit of a slog. And then I put it on again, like, mm-hmm. kind of just to make sure I didn't, I didn't miss it. And, like, I actually, once I kind of knew what the movie was and the, and the arc of the story, I kind of liked it more, I think. And I also watched all the special features um, on the Criterion Blu-ray, and I think that also made me warm to it a little bit more. Um Sure. Not going to rush to return to it, but I'm definitely glad I saw it. And um, I think, mm-hmm. like, the back half is actually pretty good. The last hour is actually very good. I, I like the last hour a lot. So, Ken, what's your number four? My number four is uh, Dog Day Afternoon. Okay. 
Wow. Uh, I thoroughly enjoy this film. It is important. It is it is essential for me to to point out the fact that from here on out, my my one through four, they're all great films in my book. Uh, so they're very close. Uh, I, I I don't want to suggest that one is truly lesser than the other. Uh, personally, Dog Day fits in at number four. I think it's a stellar film, and I think it really holds up today. And I would be really intrigued to see. I don't know, maybe a film teacher of some some kind teaching this to even students, or you know, it, it's it's a kind of I think it's the kind of movie that you can introduce new audiences to older films, uh, and they're going to get into it. I think they're going to they're going to be receptive to a film like Dog Day Afternoon. So I think it holds up really well. Uh, Agreed. Okay. Um, I will echo Ken in that um, my one through three are like all bangers. Um, in fact, yeah. if you asked me like i might change my mind at various times but i locked him in um i also echo ken in that my number four is dog day afternoon um again fantastic movie but for me it's kind of the least ambitious of the remaining four and it had the least emotional impact on me of the remaining four but again an excellent movie better than a lot of films nominated for best picture josh three let's keep that thread going chris my number three Really struggled between two and three, and I wasn't sure which one to pick, but my number three is ultimately going to be Dog Day Afternoon. So just ahead of you guys. Okay. So add three points. Dog Day Afternoon ends up with seven points in this little game we have here. Um, Like you guys said, I think this is um, probably the most watchable of the five. Well, Cuckoo's Nest could give for a run of money, but like extremely watchable. I think we talked about in the episode that it just, the thing just starts. Like, you have, like, a song playing over opening credits, then the movie just starts, and then just this full throttle for, for two hours. And to Ken's point, could be a good intro to, to people who aren't, you know, aren't used to watching movies from the 70s. This is a good one. But, yeah, uh, it's it's one that I I think that I saw this when I was, like, 19, 20, then didn't see again until we did it for this podcast. So I think it's kind of telling. Um, the other movies that I've seen that I had already previously seen before this podcast, I've revisited more than this one. Um it's still really good, though. It's, it's a banger. Dog Day Afternoon, really good. Ken, three. Uh, I've got one flew over a cuckoo's nest here at three, right here in the middle. I know it's the winner, and it is a great film, objectively so. Uh, for me, the performances are what elevate this film. Uh, my one and two, it's because it's in addition to the performances. There's more going on for me personally. Um, so one flew over a cuckoo's nest. It falls at number three just barely. Because I think the the number one and number two are are saying more uh, that I'm reacting to. Uh, my number three is Nashville. I th- think the film's terrific. Um, reason why it's there and not among the top two is uh, I tend to have like a triangle when I evaluate movies of it has to like affect me emotionally, aesthetically, intellectually. Um, I think the remaining two. As we talked about, like, there's so many different ways to assess kind of like what it's actually about. And it's kind of an open system of symbols. Uh, Nashville, I think, is less so. But um, I'm still quite fond of it. So that was my number three. Josh, two. Number, my number two is Jaws. Jaws. Again, it was this this and, and Dr. Dishing were pretty close. But um, I don't know, man. Like, this is among the most most seen most celebrated, most renowned movies of our life, or not even of our lifetimes, of, of, of the last 50, 80 years. And um, you watch and you're like, yeah, I understand. I get it. Um, it just works. It really works. Uh, I, I've said before to you guys and not on this podcast, but I've said before that I think Spielberg is maybe, he, he knows better than anyone else where to put the camera. And you see that with Jaws. Um you see the origins of that with Jaws, and you see it in West Side Story last year, for me at least. It's just all, I can't, I mean, I can't say anything that hasn't already been said about Jaws. I, I guess that the reason it's number two, not number one, is I have less of a personal relationship with this one as I do to number one. Um, I've seen it only a few times. I, I saw it for the first time after college. So um, I, I think the reason it's two and not one is just my, just a, really my personal history. But um, a nearly perfect movie, so... Jaws, number two. Ken. For number two, I have Nashville. All right. And if you'll recall, this this film I just saw uh, when we were just a couple of weeks ago when we were watching for this podcast. Uh, It was an Altman holdout for me. And 
uh, I was I was shocked at how much I loved this film. TJ, to your point, I think that this film is working on all of those levels for me. Uh, there is so much, I think, that the film is trying to say that I am excited to revisit it. Uh, in fact, I ordered a copy uh, after watching it. I liked it that much. Uh, so yeah, my number two is Nashville. A pl- very pleasant surprise to come out of this podcast. That's great. All right. Uh, my number two, and this was my one for a while, but going back to my triangle, it doesn't really emotionally affect me as much as my number one does. Um, perhaps the most perfect film out of the five, Jaws, uh, is my number two. Love Jaws. Taught Jaws. Love Jaws. Maybe the Scarf's best film. I don't think so, personally. And number one, Josh. The only one left, and that's One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. Honestly, this was the, the fifth one that we watched and the fifth one we talked about. And even though it was the one that I had seen the most of these five before this podcast, having watched the other four, I, I thought that this would not be number one. Because, like, I, I really enjoyed watching Jaws, and I really enjoyed watching Dodger Afternoon. And I'm like, in my, it, it, I'm not sure One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest is going to hold up. To, to these two and then i watched it i'm like man does this hold up it is so good um it's as good as i remember when i was 17 18 when i first saw it and um it's one of the best ever and uh i was really struck this time around by the nicholson performance um i really think that is like one of the great performances of all time honestly um his best work and from one of our best actors um and it's just really great and like we said in the episode it's entertaining it's thought-provoking and um just hard to beat so, number one, one for the cuckoo's nest for me. All right, Kenny. For for me, number one is Jaws. There's, I don't think, I don't think that's surprising. Uh, this is the film of these five I've certainly revisited the most. Uh, it is. You've both already said it. It's, uh, it's as perfect a movie as you can probably get. The fact that it's a smart, thought provoking legacy film that also is so thoroughly entertaining. Um, and it is it is Spielberg at his absolute best. I mean, you can you can throw in a couple of other titles from his filmography that I think are at this level, but I don't disagree with you, TJ. I think this I think I could make an argument for this being his all time best. And then my number one was Cuckoo's Nest. Um, oh, like Josh, I didn't uh, when we watched Jaws. I was like, ooh, I might go with Jaws. And we watched Nashville. I was like, ooh, Jaws or Nashville? I don't know. You know, uh, despite having seen Cuckoo's Nest like six, seven, eight times. And knowing what's coming, I was surprised by how emotionally affecting it still is for me. Um, and so I went ahead and went with that one. Now, by my count, by my tally, in fifth place, we have Barry Lyndon with with four points. Then we have Dog Day Afternoon with seven points. How many? Seven. Yeah, seven. Yes. Se- seven. Seven. S-E-7-E-N. Third place, we have Nashville with eight points. Yes. And then I've got a tie. Yes. Jaws and Cuckoo's Nest have 13 points. Which I say because two of us have Cuckoo's Nest ahead of Jaws, Cuckoo's Nest gets the edge because two of us have it at number one and only one of us have Jaws at number one. So I think the tiebreaker goes to Cuckoo's Nest, personally. I, I just highly recommend you don't go swimming anytime soon. Wait, are you implying that a shark's going to attack me because I defended <laughs> Cuckoo's Nest over Jaws? Maybe a mental patient will save me from the shark attack. Do you ever think of that? Do you ever think of that, Ken? You 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 are now going to have to sit through all of the sequels. That is your doctor. Doctor Cheswick and Doctor Doctor uh, uh, Scanlon on the boat will save me. They'll save me. Doctor Martini will Mayday, save you're me. Stuck with Mr. Mr. You're Harding stuck with will Mr. save Harding. me. <laughs> Mr. Harding, <laughs> the the famous Doctor Scanlon. <laughs> so, um, whether by tie or by how preferential ballot really works. Um, serious film people agrees this time with what the Oscars picked. I yeah. don't anticipate this happening much, but it's uh, not going to happen much. No. Um, yeah, <laughs> but hey, there we go. So I guess that's yeah. a, as good a start of it as any. Um, that's good. Let's get the let's get the Academy's hopes up early here. Yeah, because this is going to keep them rolling over in their graves. I'm sure. Yes. Uh, all right. What's our next year? What are we doing next? We haven't talked about this, but I would love to talk about 2007. We did talk about this. That was an option, and 1967 was an option. Remember how we're cheating at the beginning? We're not actually yeah, doing it we're, randomly. We're doing the best ones, yeah. 
Correct. We will. We we promise to go randomly in the future because otherwise we're going to get through all of what we think are strong years uh, too soon, and we're going to be stuck with really, really just forgettable years. So we're going to talk about 2011 and talk about the artist and extremely loud and incredibly close and War Horse and the Help. <laughs> That's just. A... But we also get Moneyball and Tree of Life in that year, so you know. And Hugo. And he, I oh, you, Hugo, you take the good fantastic. So wait, 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 wait before we, what, what, what are we doing? He, uh, 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 Ken, what's your what's your vote? I was gonna go sixty-seven, but I honestly don't mind going either one of those years for second for this second go around. Uh, I'm I'm more than happy to revisit any of those movies. So I I've, I recently rewatched Michael Clayton, and No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood are always top of mind for me. So, and I also rewatched Juno actually fairly recently too. So, um, I would love to do 2007 personally. All right, let's do it. All right, sound good, Ken? Okay, so those those five films are Atonement, Juno, Michael Clayton, No Country for Old Men, and There Will Be Blood, and we likely will uh, um, attack them in that order. So, I think that sounds guess that means Atonement's next week. All right, Atonement, sweet, yeah, cool. Okay, guys, that'll be a first time watch for me. Really? Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen it since uh, that Oscar season, so that'll be interesting. Yeah. Um, I think I actually watched that at a friend's house on DVD and fell asleep, but that was like on second viewing, so that doesn't count. So I can put Josh down for fifth place atonement. <laughs> we'll see, actually. We'll see. Oh, we'll see. It may be, it may, yeah, we'll see. The ranking may be interesting for the 2007 movies, but uh, I just want to say that, guys, this is really fun. This this first little series we did on the films of seventy five for the seventy six ceremony, distinction I'm tired of making, was really fun, and I thank you for joining me on this journey. Likewise. Any, any, any closing thoughts Exciting. on this film of seventy five? Anything? Um, Screw thank Richard you Nixon for listening. Hope you check. Hope you check out uh, the nominees, but also the films we mentioned that we've seen that we think are are well worth a look. And um, yeah, that's all I got. Ken. Yeah, just do us all a favor and and keep going to the movies keep watching the movies and don't for the for the love of all that is holy in the world don't just go see the franchise films <laughs> over and over just those you go see them but go see the others as well go see elvis instead <laughs> or whatever. Oh, i don't know <laughs> yeah. let's not let's not know that's for a different conversation boz lerman will come up at some point will he in 2001 will he yes come he up? will that, okay that when he comes up 2001 well stay tuned for that and tune in again next time as we discuss Atonement in Films 2007. Thank you for joining us for 1975. This has been really fun. Come back again. Bye. See you later. <laughs>